Sandrine Lafont, welcome to the podcast. Merci beaucoup. Thank you. <laughs> so, for our listeners, uh, Sandrine and I have known each other, I would say, for approximately about 10 years, I think now, Sandrine. Yes, since Ottawa. Since Ottawa. So, Sandrine was uh, producing, um, creating, acting in a show called Little Lady at the time, and I was at the media release for it. And I remember seeing the video trailer for that show and saying to one of my colleagues, Who is that person? And she said, Sandrine Lafont, I know her. Come, come, I'll introduce you. <laughs> and sure enough, I got to meet the Sandrine Lafont. So it's been a while, Sandrine. It's been a while. Yes, and we've met so many times since then as friends and for work. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> so, Sandrine, you're originally from France. Uh, what part of France are you from? So I was born in Saint-Étienne, was next to Lyon, but I spent all my childhood in the south of France in Cannes. Uh, the reason being that they have still today an amazing dance school, ballet school, and that's since I was five, that's what I, I did. So that was the main reason why we moved out there. So you were originally trained in ballet? Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, that was really the, the beginning. My teacher was also the director of the uh, Paris Opera at that time. So we're very lucky because all our teachers had an amazing level and during vacation, the stars from the Paris Opera would come down and take classes with our teachers because they were that good. So it was it it was very inspiring because we were the we were always surrounded by amazing artists and creators. Um, so yeah, it was really a wonderful school, and it is still today. So guys, Sandrine is a, a trained professional dancer. Uh, for most of your career, Sandrine, you've been a dancer. What led you to actually come to Canada? Uh, it was a personal uh, story. Well, first of all, when I was a teenager, I was dying to move to, to the States. Don't ask me why, but that was it. So when I was 19, I moved for a year to New York. Then I came back to, uh, to France, to Europe, to work as a dancer. Um, but once I was back in France and in Europe, I was missing the big space from North America. And at that time I had a boyfriend who was moving to Montreal. So I basically followed him. But when I arrived here in Montreal, I totally fell in love with the people. Um, so then, you know, I mean, after that, he, you know, he left, uh, I stayed and, um, yeah, it's, it's really a love story with the people here and the, um, the artistic world and the creativity that is very special to this country. Yeah. Montreal is a very, very unique and very special place in Canada. And like you said, throughout the world, I've had a few Montreal artists on the show already, Nathalie Claude, Julie McInnes, um, you know, some other Cirque alumni. Uh, so it's been, uh, it's been great talking about the Montreal culture. Um, and you're back in Montreal now. What is it about, I, I guess, is it the culture that keeps bringing you back? I realize that every time I'm creating a new company, I end up in Montreal every single time. So the, uh, the two times I created the one woman show for little lady, you know, when we met, I created those in Montreal. And now that I'm opening a new company, Miyusaka, it's also Montreal. There is something that just, it's like a vortex that just brings me back to Montreal. And I, it's not like I decide, Oh, I'm going to go to Montreal. No, it's just things in life makes me come back to here. Why do you think that is? 
is it the um, is the creativity? I think it's, it's almost like it liberates my creativity. It just makes it possible too. Um, but also, let's be realistic. I've you know I moved here, God, like thirty years ago. I imagine something like this. Um, so I do have a lot of people that I know and who are always there. I don't ask them, but they're always there to help me. And whatever they think about when I'm creating something, they write me right away. So that support also in Montreal uh, is absolutely fantastic. So it's really a sense of community, really, in Montreal. Artistic community, is that what you would label Artistic- it as? Yeah, artistic community, definitely, because all the people that I know here, it's through dance at the base, even if a lot of them, like me, we have moved on from dance, but are still, you know, in the art. Um, So it's uh, from art and then also now um, entrepreneurial, you know. So, um, yes, it's that connection that, uh, yes, there is this in Montreal. It's very nurturing. Okay. What's really interesting about podcasts and podcast listeners is that the large majority of them don't really enjoy um, listening to biographical information. So, uh, but I, as as a host, am very curious to learn about one specific thing about your biography, which is at what point did you decide that you wanted to be a dancer? Because it's such a strange career. Really, it is. Not a lot of people can make a living as a dancer. Um, I was just before five years old and there was a ballet on TV. And I I pointed at that and I said, this is what I want to do. But you never had pressure to to become something else, to get like a so-called real job? Oh, yes. I did by my mother. So actually, when I was 18, I left home. As soon as I had my baccalaureate and I was 18, so I was legal, um, I left home because that's, there was nothing that could come in, my, in between what I wanted to do and myself and me. So um, anybody that would not agree with that passion and that desire had to be pushed away. That's interesting. So you're a very headstrong person. (laughs) To say the least. (laughs) To say the least. (laughs) Um, But it's just when I, you know, I don't have a good rethink. Like, uh, it's just when I feel in my heart that there is something that I need to do or someone that I need to talk to or or something that I need to create, it doesn't really make sense maybe for other people from outside, but I know it is the right moment for me at that time. And whatever is the end result is not obligatory, very important for me. It's just the fact that I know I need to do it because it's, it's bringing me somewhere else in my life. And if I don't do it, then I'm missing um, a part of the ingredient to who I am becoming. And what's interesting about young people in the arts is that a lot of people want to be artists. A lot of people are not really great at the arts. You know, there's a there's a sort of emotional attachment sometimes to the arts because people see it as a form of, of expression, of liberation. But it really takes a certain kind of talent, a certain kind of discipline, a certain kind of application to quality. When did you really realize, and let's just be frank about it, but when did you realize that you were a better dancer than perhaps the average person? Um, It's when 
just when you off it's when you get the job of course but when you're actually given specific task in the company and also when you can see that the um the creator may um may not work with you it depends sometimes they work with you much more because they know exactly where they can bring you and they can see the potential and sometimes it's more um, okay sandrine do your thing and then they start working with the rest of the group because they know exactly what you know as i'm as i was as I had more knowledge, what I could give to them. So it's already working with me or leaving me alone. But you, you know, you have that, that feeling. Um, when I was younger, there was something very important for me. Every time I would not get the job, I would get until the end of the audition and then I would not get the job. I would always wait until everybody was gone. And then I would go in to the, you know, director or choreographer and ask them, why did I not get it? What am I missing? for the next time for me to be able to get the job. And I did that all the time because I knew they had a point of view on me, of me that I, of course I did not because you know, you're inside of yourself and they could see what was lacking. So, right, right. Mm-hmm. And this is a very practical thing that um, any job applicant for any career can do really is go talk to the hiring people and find out what it is that didn't get you the job, whether you're an artist or not. I think that's mm-hmm. a quality uh, that a lot of people perhaps aren't even aware is it, that they're allowed to do that. It's okay to actually ask for advice. It is. And I also do when I get the job, I would also go to them and ask, why did I get the job? So I would know what is it in me, what was in me that they liked to make sure that I'm also continuing on working with those, you know, specificity, uh, because that's what they are looking at me, in me. Um, so both, both ways that you get the job or not. It's interesting because when I lived in Montreal, I didn't know as many dancers, but I knew a lot of circus artists, you know, people who are acrobats and things like that. It is a very much an athletic pursuit. Uh, what is the... What is the average, let's say, regimen for a dancer? What is it like, let's say, from Monday to Friday? Are you working on your dancing every day? Are you in physical therapy every day? Are you constantly nursing blisters every day? What is it really like? Um, If I speak for myself, every morning it was physical training, that it was dance or gym or anything else that would just, you know, bring me strength to my body. Um, so it's like an hour and a half to two hours training in the morning. Then it's generally a five hours. If you're in a company, it's five hours rehearsal in the afternoon. And then at night, pretty much, you know, taking a bath and not doing really anything because your body is kind of exhausted. Uh, and then every Friday night I used to have a massage because that was the only thing that would actually save me from my week. Um, and then on the weekend, you know, one day I would do something and then let's say the Sunday I would just stay in bed and do nothing, uh, because it was so physically demanding. I needed to really just take care of my body and give it a lot of love and rest. Did you ever suffer any injuries? Not really, actually. Uh, my, my body is really a, a dancer body. It's a very easy body, uh, really, uh, really aching. So, um, but I also took great care of it. Um, did a lot of, um, you know, would go and see doctors and osteopath and massage. 
very, very often because I knew I was demanding so much to that body that it needed some love coming from other people also. Uh, so prevention, prevention, prevention all the time. And I still do that now because, you know, getting older, just making sure my body uh, can still serve me as I need. Okay. And for those of us who are not dancers and will never be dancers, we uh, tend to become familiarized with dancer kind of life through films and television shows. And you see movies like Black Swan and these other films. And all you think about is, oh, my God, dancers are just terrible to each other. You know, is it really like that? Or do you guys tend to form a really a community? I would say when I was... Uh, when I was young and in the ballet world, it was definitely not a very, I think, positive attitude um, because you or you're number one or you're in the corps de ballet. So basically you're behind all your life. And so it, it is not a very positive surrounding. Um, as I transferred into more contemporary dance and, you know, working with Cirque and all of this, it became way more of a family and less cutthroat and much more on helping each other. Uh, but I would say also like through the years and having bad experience with people uh, in companies, it actually just helped me on changing because I was definitely raised to be a ballerina. So not being nice with other people, um, with my peers. And being in that situation all the time became so negative for me. It actually helped me to completely like flipped from one day to another to studying being good. And if I knew about, let's say, an audition that was not open for everyone, well, if I knew about it, I just started to spread the world. And just because, you know, I, I believe that, you know, there is a space for each of us. And maybe the job that I'm going to audition for is not for me, it's for someone else, and I'm supposed to be somewhere else. Um, so to just not hold on that much to what I think is mine, but more to, you know, give it away. Um, so when you're not raised to be like this, it, it was a struggle for a long time. And I definitely also, I have a big ego and I have, you know, I'm strong headed, but it has been forever positive to be more given than keeping it for myself. And I have another curious question, because now that I have you here, I mean, I want to know everything about the world of dance. I am very curious, because we're going to talk about a couple of individual projects that you've done, but dance is very much a team, I want to call it a team sport, let's say. Um, but at what point do you have kind of more leeway to inject your own creativity? Is it the way that you move a certain way? Is it that the choreographer says, what would you do with this? Like, uh, where's the balance between being uh, directed and injecting your own take on a certain performance? You have to kind of um, choreographers and director, you have the one that choreograph absolutely every single thing where, you know, you, you don't really have a lot of space and freedom to actually express yourself through it, but, you know, you still can do it because you're an interpret. Uh, and then there are some other choreographers that for them, it's more about giving you inspiration on what they want to see. So it, it's, you know, it's almost like they give you food and then you digest and what you give, it's pretty much what they wanted to see plus added who you are so 
you know, when you're younger, or at least when I was younger, I you know much prefer having someone telling me what to do. But very, very fast, like my first job almost started with um, improvisation and hours and hours of improvisation every single day. Uh, but, you know, I realized how lucky I was because it's um, it was very guided improvisation. And I was developed, uh, I was able through that to develop myself also as a creator. Okay, and then so you come to Canada, you work for, um, I know that you, you worked for Marie Chouinard, correct? Mm -hmm. you, danced, yes. you danced in her company. And then you went out into uh, the United States, finally. You did a big, big career in the United States, in Las Vegas. You worked for Céline Dion, um, Cirque du Soleil. You had huge successes. Um, tell me a little bit about transitioning from Canadian dance to big production Las Vegas dance. Is that, what, what was that like? Um, it was quite hard. I don't think I realized what I was going into. Um, you know, going from like a small group of 12 dancers and dancing solos and arriving on a stage that, you know, was just like an enormous stage with Celine uh, with like 56 dancers and mainly, you know, being in group. And believe it or not, but for me, having to do the same thing every single night is actually very um, uh, stressful because naturally I just change things day after day because the movement has a life. So when you're doing a solo or the duet, it's not so bad. But when you're dancing with like 55 other people, you need to do the same choreography. And so that was actually very stressful for me because I really had to make sure I was still doing the same thing and not moving on to something else. Did you audition for Celine? Yes, I auditioned in Montreal. They had the audition all around the world, and I did the, one of the them in Montreal. Okay, and so what is it? What is it, what is it like being on stage for a concert? Is it something where, um, well, like you said, you know, it's the same thing over and over again? But do you do you have any stage fright of it of any kind? Uh, I'm not. I'm not if I if I have state fright then what I do on stage is not good. I really need to be relaxed and um just confident before I go and just very very relaxed and doing a lot of breathing uh, otherwise the result will be awful but it is for me that it's a big stage like for Celine or that it's a solo there is not a difference in the amount of stage fright. Okay. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I remember Jeanette Renault was saying, you know, during one of her concerts um, that she constantly has stage fright. She feels like throwing up before every every show. So I'm always curious to see how performers feel about, you know, being on stage, being in front of an audience. Do dancers get any criticism from from the audience or is it just usually the singer who's the star of the show, really? It's the, it's the singer. I would say for, for Celine, we were just very lucky because people came to see her, obviously, but we were such a big part of the show. It was so among us that they were actually surprised and would, you know, suddenly realize, oh, there is Celine, of course. I mean, this is Celine. But then there is an amount of people around her and the decor and the music that was, you know, different um, and all the artistry they actually really enjoyed it uh but we no we did not get the critique the only person carrying everything on her back was celine right i can't even imagine being in her shoes i mean do you find that um 
Is it a good spot to be as a dancer where you get to be part of a show, but you don't have to take on any of the the criticism and and but also you don't get half the accolades, I'm sure too. So, but is it is it fun to be kind of kind of like and it might sound rude to say this, but like a faceless kind of part of the the project whereas, you know, you have the celebrity there. Is it is that more fun or would you prefer to be the one, you know? I it was a great experience, but I do prefer when uh, I'm um, I'm the one in the spotlight. Okay. Let's. I know it's awful to say. It's going to sound <laughs> awful, but that's just the reality. But I have to say that working with Celine, I learn immensely from her as a, as a person, um, because I realized that yes, of course, you know she has an, an amazing voice, but you don't get to that level without hard work and it's a 24 hours a day work non-stop 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 and even when you reach to the top you still continue on so it's uh, it was quite a, it was a great experience to to be with her on stage and seeing her dedication to the work uh, and being so nice to work with I mean she could have been a diva you know mm-hmm. she can uh, but she never did in five years of shows with her. So um, definitely learned a lot with uh, working with her. And I guess the other part of being able to be the one in the spotlight is that you have ultimate control. Um, I think that if when you're the dancer or a musician on a big show like that, you don't have as much say in what happens. I think uh, I think knowing you, as I know you, something is that you like, you love making things perfect. And so it must have been uh, frustrating sometimes, I guess, uh, when you can't, you don't have control or as much say, perhaps, as you as you would want. Oh, it was at time very frustrating. Definitely, definitely. So I had to remind myself, you know, what were the reason why I wanted to to work in that show? You know, it's like just to make sure that nothing else would come into my mind and, you know, uh, give me frustration. But yeah, no, no, definitely. It's a, it's a challenge. You know, it's, it's always a challenge when you are creating, let's say, your own company or working for a big company because they are positive and negative for both. But every time you have to remind yourself of those positive, you know, signs, sides and why you're doing it um, because both are a challenge. Curious question for you. Do you think that talent is something that is innate? Are you born with talent? Or is it something that you can learn along the way? And I'm spe- speaking specifically to a physical performer. Hmm. Um, you know, I worked with dancers and uh, I saw some dancers or, you know, on stage and, and some of them, I mean, there is nothing to do. There's just, they can just be standing there on stage and their presence is I think that is from birth I'm not sure if you can really learn it but they have such a big presence that I mean there is nothing to do I mean like you know you you could dance like crazy next to them but nobody (laughs) would look at you (laughs) so um, I do think that you know, whatever you have at the beginning, you're, you're going to work it hard and make it better and refine it. But on a certain point, there is a maximum of classes you can take. I mean, you need some, you need to have something at the beginning, 
you know. Right. So maybe yeah. it's a combination of both. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Uh, I guess the second part to that question would be, do you, th- do you find that, because again, knowing who you are, I know you're a perfectionist. I know you're somebody who's devoted to quality and creativity. Is that, do you think that that's the reason why you got that far in your career? Or is that something that you learned along the way, like you said, with Céline and Cirque? Or is it another one of those questions where it's a bit of both? Uh I've been dedicated to whatever I do since I was a child. So let's say if the class, the dance class in the morning, on, I remember on the Saturday morning in Cannes was at eight, well, I would be there 30 minutes before to warm up. And it's not because we had to, it's because I wanted to. Um, so it's, um, it's just because I love what I do so much that for me, it is very important that I give 110%. It's never 100%. For me, 100% is, is a shame. Like for me, you know, it's, it's not a shame, but it's a shame because I'm, I'm missing something and I'm missing the 10%. And I always think that maybe today is my last day on earth. So, I mean, I'm, am I going to give only 100%? <laughs> mm-hmm. This is awful. Like I really want to give the maximum and knowing at the end of the day that maybe that maximum wasn't good today. But I did my maximum and more for that day. I see this a lot in artists, you know, um, and I'm speaking directly to artists, but it's I see this in any professional, which is this kind of desire to do something. But the the lack of work ethic, the lack of um, a very high quality approach to something, I think that that is something that, uh, you know, it's something that you learn in a company like Cirque or working for Céline or whatever, but you can't get into those companies without having that in the first place. You have to almost have an innate desire to do something extraordinary. I agree. And, you know, the, the few times when I work as a, as a director, so I work with artists and it's naturally like the, the artists that have that dedication oh my God, I will give them 110% of whatever I can because I can see that that they are very talented or not, I know they will go very far because they are working so hard for it and they will find their own way to do it. But it is also very disarming when I work with artists uh, who don't have that and have no desire to better themselves. And for, I'm sure very good reasons that I don't know about but it is very disarming I really I intellectually I understand it but in my heart I, I can't comprehend it yeah it is definitely and it actually leads me to think to a very sensitive topic which is drugs and alcohol in the arts industry mm-hmm. uh, I have been around it a lot I know that it's a massive problem, and I find that it tends to affect artists who perhaps don't have that kind of innate um, dedication to kind of bettering themselves, like you just like you just mentioned. Did you um, did you see that in your industry as well? Is are drugs and alcohol a problem in in the dancing kind of performing arts world? Um, yes, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> I, I I seen it firsthand and it can be quite frightening when you're dancing with someone that you know is actually impaired Mm, yeah 
Yeah, and you know it before going on stage. So you then know that you have to be very careful with your body, specifically if you're, uh, especially if you're partnering with them. And I would say in small companies, like big companies. Okay, so it happens across the board. Yeah, but you know, let's be realistic. It's not like the majority, far from it. Like it's a very tiny percentage, but yeah. It exists. How is it? Um, you know, I, I mean, I know a lot of people in theater and in film, and alcohol, especially, is a huge problem. But there are hard drugs in there too. What is it that? Um, why did you end up staying away from it? Again, is it because you're this kind of headstrong, you know, personality that just likes to do things the right way? Is is that what it is, or you just never needed to well, find solace in that? <laughs> um. Well, a, a little story. Um, when I was 18, I saw an osteopath in France. And uh, he told me, he's like, if one day you want to do any drugs or alcohol or whatever you want to do, please just take like a quarter of it because you're so sensitive that, you know, it's going to blow your mind. And I was just turning 18. Like, you know, I wasn't really sure exactly what he was talking about. Uh, but that did actually stick, you know, into my mind. Um there is the fact that I enjoy every single moment of life and I like to be present as much as I can in every single second. So if I am impaired, then I feel like I'm losing that moment of my life. I just wasted it. Um, so it's not wanting to be, you know, in control, but it's just to want to appreciate every single second. It's interesting because for me, it's about being in control, actually. <laughs> it's that if I did a photo shoot when I was a photographer, if I did a photo shoot, um, I would never drink uh, you know, a glass of wine before shooting. I would mm -hmm. never do anything. Uh, it, it, it was too important to have a clear vision. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it's interesting that what you're saying is either to be in, in control or to appreciate the moment in real time, really, that's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. uh, let's move on to something a little bit more whimsical. You, uh, <laughs> after your dancing career, uh, after Cirque du Soleil, you went on to study clowning. Mm -hmm. That yep. is uh, also an unusual approach to life, clowning. Clowning is, uh, man, I think we could talk about it for a whole hour, but it is something that is... There's a lot of misconceptions about clowns. What is clowning to you? Uh, well, first of all, I never liked clowns. They never made me laugh, even when I was a kid. And I was never, ever, ever interested in the clown world or becoming a clown. Um, it just... Um, well, you know, I, through my career, I took different classes, like, you know, singing and acting, you know, just to broaden my horizon and be a, a better um, artist. And every time I took an acting class, you know, I, I was, you know, I was basically born a dancer. So everything that I do is as a dancer. And I would be always corrected. No, you know, you're doing it as a dancer and you need to do it as that character. And it, it just didn't work out with me because I'm like, hey, this is who I am. And I just want to explore further who I am without taking away parts of me. And clown gave me that because clown gave me the possibility to enjoy every single part of who I am and even pushing it further 
the good part of me and then the bad part of me and just discovering who I am really as a whole, uh, you know, being proud of or not of those of those side, but enjoying them completely. So that's what clowning was about for me. And just so that people know, you studied under John Turner at the yes. Manitoulin Clown Farm out on Manitoulin Island here in Ontario, Canada. What was different about John's approach? Um, like, why didn't you just study clowning in Montreal, for example? I did. I did clown, uh, study clowning in Montreal, but it was something... There was something, I couldn't say something missing because they were absolutely amazing uh, classes, but I don't know, there was still for me something missing. And then when I went to work with uh, with John, um, the, the technique that he's using is more discovering. It's the way I can say it is that let's say the French way that is, is being uh, studied in Montreal is more who you are from the outside. The technique that John Turner is using is really going from inside to outside. So it's really putting your heart out there. And it's just the way I feel it. But for me, it was very close to the first time when I went to Japan more than 20 years ago to study Buto dance. And they call it the little dance of the inside you know it's a bad translation but that's what it means and you're basically just opening yourself and putting your heart on the table and the the work with John for me was that opening yourself pretty much being naked to who you are and being okay with that and being okay to make fun of it and you know, enjoying to put it out there. And I think that's why I really responded really well to uh, uh, to his training. And you created something extraordinary called Little Lady after that training, which is, for me, still by far my, one of my favorite Fringe productions um, and has a, a very special place in my heart. I was fortunate enough to do some photography for Little Lady, so I have a very close relationship with this character. <laughs> um, <laughs> Little Lady is gone now. Uh, is mm-hmm. this, did, you, did you wake up one morning and say, okay, I'm done with this character? Um, so I did two one-woman show with her. And the third one was written and I even got a grant to develop a costume. It was an inflatable costume. Uh, The reality of it is that I wasn't able to financially make it. I wasn't able to leave out of Little Lady. And, you know, and I was very, extremely, extremely lucky because I did, you know, when I asked for grants here in Canada, I did get my grants. So I was able to pay my people and, uh, you know, I was able to function. But once this was finished, just once the production, the creation, production and show were finished, I had no money coming in. So that's just the reality of that life. And I did Little Lady when at the beginning of my 40s and I was not 20 anymore, where maybe at 20s I would have been like, it's okay, I will just eat pasta and, you know, potatoes and I will and rice and I will make it. Um, when I arrived at 40 and after having amazing companies and amazing tours around the world, um, I wasn't ready to go back on 
living on the couch, even if I did it during the tour of Little Lady for a very long time, uh, because financially it was definitely not easy, but a little bit more realistic of where is it that I want to be and where is my art, um, you know, what is the best place for my art? And, and people started to ask me, like, what are you going to do with Little Lady? And I was just like, I don't know, maybe Little Lady is a stepping stone for something else. You know, I was already realizing that maybe I would not be able to live with, you know, financially with Little Lady. So, and, you know, it's really what it became because it's, it's crazy because when I did it, it was, I really just wanted to do Little Lady. I was not thinking of what it would bring me after. Never, I never, ever think about that. But it brought me so much credit because, you know, of course I had, you know, amazing people helping me, but it's basically, you know, having the idea, creating it, performing it, touring it, organizing the tour, like doing everything you need to do on the tour for six months, you know, with the fringe. Um, and it gave me a lot of credit because, you know, suddenly I was called to do production and creation of big shows because people, I guess, realized, well, if she can do all of that by herself, you know, I guess we can count on her, you know? <laughs> so, um, so it led me to amazing creations after that. Yeah, it's interesting because I am extremely proud of what, how you've grown from that production. And yet a part of me really misses her. You know, it's, mm -hmm. this is the sad part about independent production in, in, the, in Canada, but also in the world, which is that all these whimsical, beautiful ideas that could be, you know, come, could be brought to life, but we don't really fund it all that much, at least not in Canada, uh, perhaps a little bit more in Quebec. But even then, once it is funded, what's next? So it's a, it's a very, very difficult life to be an independent artist who creates imaginative things. Would you agree? It is. And, you know, we're really, really, really lucky in Quebec because we do get the money for, for creation. But yes, once it's finished creating, then you're in a void, mm -hmm. completely void. It's emptiness. Um, and yeah, there is, there is nowhere to go after that. And it's fantastic to create, but on a certain point, you know, it's like if you rehearse your dance, you know, forever in a studio, but if you're not going to bring it on stage, then it will never grow, you know, and it will never become what it is supposed to become. So, um, and on a certain point, you just, you know, I just became realistic with that situation. But is it sad? Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, I still like, you know, especially during, you know, this time, you know, with COVID and staying at home, like I think about her and I have ideas for her. The only thing right now that actually keeps me from like, you know, doing more like videos or photos, it's because it takes me 45 minutes to put the makeup on. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like, just, just thinking of that, I'm like, Beautiful makeup, by the way, but I'm just like, oh, I'm not sure I can do that. <laughs> yeah, it's almost as though you need like a more simplified version of Little Lady. Or it, it really also teaches people, you know, you can have some beautiful ideas that are adapted to stage or to film, but they're not adapted to the every everyday social sharing that you would need to keep a character alive. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's the thing is that, you know, artists are very much, and tell me how you feel about this, because I find that artists are very much pressured right now to play on social media, 
to to become almost their own marketers, to become their own producers, to become their own promoters. Um, it's a lot to put on the shoulders of artists. Um, it's a lot. And at the beginning of the first wave, when I saw a lot of artists giving their art for free, it killed me. It killed me because art is not free. Um, art is a job. It's a full-time job. You know, like if I can speak only for myself, I started studying when I was five years old and I've never, ever stopped. Like if you're whatever artist you are, you're not just creating, you also always studying and developing yourself. Like it's a nonstop. It's like you were going to university your entire life. Granted, you love it, but you are still going to university all your life. So this is not free. Um, as a dancer, as an artist, I have never, ever worked for free. And I, when I had propositions, when it was for free, I did refuse, even if I did not have work. Uh, and I stand by this to this day. Um, asking artists to, well, okay, well, then suddenly, you know, you can be on social media and you can sell yourself and all this. This is not what an artist is. You know, you have produ producers, you have creators, you have directors. Everybody have their place and their reason to be. Um, some people, you know, maybe a 1% can, you know, do it all. And it's great, fantastic. But it depends also what kind of art you're doing. And some of the art on, don't really look good on social media or not really interesting. Um, live art, if it's not seen live, the way you photograph it or the way you uh, film it has to be very, very specific. Otherwise, it won't look good and it will look even very bad. So this is a lot to ask to the artist. I find I think it's really unfair. And let's not forget, like if you... We, it's just I think we do forget when you watch movie, when you listen to music when you read a book when you read a magazine all of this this is art those are artists that are working so if you don't want to pay for art then you're going to have to stop listening to music listening to radio listening uh, watching movie stop reading you're gonna have to stop all of that so giving your art for free i disagree and i mean i understand that people you know that's what they want to do and it's fine but i i, I still can't get behind that it's just very difficult and like you you mentioned just a little bit earlier we you talked about aging you know that you were in your 40s and you're like you know i have to make a decision and i want to touch on on, on a little topic because we were, we were talking about it right before we started this podcast which is menopause <laughs> which is that darling old time in our 40s or 50s that hits you know it, i think it hits artists even harder and especially the performing artists only because it's it's like going through a second, you know, hormonal, like a massive hormonal shift in your body. Do you, I'm, first of all, I'm curious, do you know any dancers who are still dancing in their late 40s and 50s and experiencing menopause? Is that still, a, is that a thing? Uh, yes. You oh, have really? people who still dance uh, much older and it, it is actually much more open now. Uh, because it's not just about ballet and more contemporary dance and, you know, improvisation. So, yes, they are dancers that are much older that are still on stage. 
Okay. Yeah. I was just curious because I can't imagine. I, I mean, there's things that I've cut out of my life completely because of the changes in my body that I find myself getting too tired or, you know, you get a, a, a certain pains or whatever, headaches, migraines, migraines, like I'm throwing up with migraines now, which is new in my life. Um, how has that affected you as an artist, the, the whole aging process? Um, it, I wouldn't say it is fun. Definitely not. Um, because I'm not on stage anymore, uh, maybe it's a bit easier for me. But, you know, uh, I always say uh, I'm vain. So I continue on training. And it's mainly because I know as we get older, our muscle mass starts to disappear. And I know how awful it can be. The repercussion can be on your body. Also, having trained that hard all my life, um, if I stop, then it's like my body starts to disintegrate because it's, it's almost like a drug, like the body needs to move. So, of course, I'm not going to push my body as much as I used to because it would be definitely uh, negative. So it's also learning what are your new uh, borders, you know, how far can you go now? Because it's definitely not like before. The fact that, yeah, we get tired more often. And right now I'm still training, but it's, you know, I just, winter is coming and I just feel like I just want to hibernate. So I am kind of pushing my body to, uh, to stay in shape. Also, if you continue, it's much easier because the day you stop, it becomes so much harder to go back. Um, you know, endorphins and all of this that, that it gives you. And I think it is very important. The, the thing with menopause that I find still striking today in 2020 um, is that as we're still living in a patriarchal society, believe it or not, um, a lot of science is developed on men, but not on women. So menopause is still a taboo in 2020 in the fact that so many women don't know what's happening and they have no idea what to do. And it's not because you're going to your doctor, uh, even your gynecologist, that they're going to actually know what's happening with you, believe it or not, but it is true. So um, I've had a fake pre-menopause since I'm 35 years old. And I know it's mainly because I pushed my body so far that, of course, the hormones are going to take a toll. Um, so, you know, I, very early on, I discovered, you know, supplements, plants and stuff like this because, I, you know, I didn't want to, I don't take any uh, harsh medicine. And it really, and it helped me. So, you know, I tried to, when my friend asked, you know, it's just, I know some people, you know, want to take harsh drugs and it's, you know, I mean, drugs, you know, and it's fine if it works for them, but... We have so many ways of being better. And as I always say, you, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to suffer through your menopause. I truly believe it. This is absolutely ridiculous. If you let yourself suffer, why? Why? I think it can be a beautiful thing. Like I remember a lady telling me, oh my God, finally is the first time in my life that I'm always warm. <laughs> finally, I'm not cold. You know, and I was like, thank you. That's a great way to see it. Um, as women also, I think we're extremely connected to our body and that it's, you know, with the period and after that with menopause. And I think it is such a beautiful presence that we have as women, because you can really 
you know what is annoying you. You can feel it more, you know, with the menopause or next where you're coming to your period and you are able to go in yourself and realize things more. And then after that, take care of it. Right. You know, and don't let linger. So I do think that all those changes in your life are, if you want, they are a great gift. It's a very beautiful way of, of looking at it. I think it was the visual artist Degas who um, adapted his art based on what his body could do. I think, oh. if I'm not mistaken, he went from uh, painting to sculpture when he was losing his sight. I could be wrong, but I, I do re recall a little tidbit on that. I'm curious now because you do shodo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're talking about aging, we're talking about the changing body. Now you practice something that is visual, a visual art, which is, I think, your first time uh, that you delve into this art, this art form. You do it with your company that you've created uh, with some colleagues called Miyusaka. Um, tell me a little bit, first of all, about the Shodo. Um, so... I lived uh, for two years in, in Kobe, in Japan. And so Shodo is the Japanese calligraphy that comes from the, the Chinese calligraphy. And it's, uh, I discovered an art that I can practice until I die. Compared to dance that, you know, you definitely have an end to, you know, your career. Um, but I mean, that's absolutely amazing. Because when I was dancing, what is very hard for dancers when we stop, and it's very hard to find something that is going to bring us that much. Because you're, you're present physically, mentally, spiritually. I mean, it's an amazing work. And with Shodo, to be able to create something that is meaningful and that the result is pleasing, I have to have exactly the same physical, mental, and spiritual state. Um, so it makes me so happy and, you know, it's just practicing, not right now because we just opened the company, but otherwise when I was in Japan is to actually practice every morning. It's like doing my, you know, my ballet, my ballet bar, you know, when I was a kid and it's just practice, 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 practice it's in the same way and not being attached to, you know, a lot of paper that you put in the recycle because it, this was bad work. Um, but it's, um, I love it. It's a brush. It's the ink. You know, it takes 30, almost 30 minutes to prepare your ink on the ink stone with the ink um, um, baton stick and the water. Um, it's like a meditation. You're not doing like a full on meditation as you would do, you know, uh, in a meditation class or uh, yoga, but it is meditation because you are really concentrating. Um, and you generally, um, you know, do uh, kenji, so signs that are known in the Chinese or in the Japanese um, alphabet. Or you can also go more into abstract. Um, and it's, um, it's so simple. It's just a brush, ink, paper. That's it. And you. It's uh, it's a very beautiful. You're you're the one who's really introduced me to it. Actually, I had known about it. You know, I'd maybe seen a clip on te on a television so in a like a kung fu movie or something. You know, <laughs> um, but you're, it's the first time that I actually met somebody who creates that kind of art. Are you? Do you know if there are any other dancers who have transitioned to shodo? Because I find that you have a very interesting perspective. Your art feels like it's dancing, like it's a permanence 
of a dance? Mm -hmm. I do not know of any other dancers that became shoto artists. Um, where dance becomes very practical and adds a lot, it's uh, because you can do different formats. And you can definitely like do like, you know, the big one, like one meter on two meter on the floor with a very like huge, um, I was going to say broom because you kind of feel like a witch, <laughs> but the brush is so big and you basically, you know, like you, that's the moment where I can really dance with it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing feeling and definitely gives a different feel to, um, to the calligraphy. Okay. And so you started a company again. This is you going, hey, I'm going to try this now because this is what my heart is telling me to do. Uh, tell me about the kimonos, which, I, oh God, they're so beautiful. They are so beautiful. They are works of art. They are vintage in the sense that they are ancient. Really, some of them are ancient, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Some of them are, are from before the Second World War, actually. Um, it's as I was um, studying Shodo, I started also to study the the art of dressing. You know, with the kimono, um, it is definitely an art. Um, it's like a choreography. It's like a dance. It's absolutely fantastic, and there are many different ways of of doing it. Um, and I really fell in love with the kimono. The the only thing that was missing for me is that as much as I love Japan and I've been to Japan many times um, and I love the arts and the people and the food and everything, but I do not feel like wearing a kimono in the street. And let's be realistic, you know, I'm from the Western world. So I was like, I need to change those kimonos to make sure I can wear them in my everyday life. And I need something practical because I'm a practical person. Um, so we did that. We, we changed them. So those kimono that I handpicked in, uh, in Osaka, who are, you know, made of silk, some of them are painted by hands. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, fun. they are beautiful, beautiful creations. So I bought those in second hands. I brought, you know, with me, I think around 50 kimonos and we decided to transform them. So with Caroline Sikar, who is, uh, uh one of, um, the creator of uh, Miyusaka with Mike Devenet. And so, you know, we give them a different shape in the, in the bottom. So they are much, uh, they are still very long. They are like a long vest, a long coat, uh, but you know, they are not on the floor. Definitely not. Uh, we've made the, um, the sleeve a little bit uh, shorter. So, you know, you can put your bags and everything like, you know, it doesn't stick and it doesn't stay stuck in the between. And, um, and we, we gave them a, a waste. <laughs> we gave them a waste because, you know, it's, it was that desire to, let's say, you know, you're in, I don't know, just your normal wear of every day. And you just put this long vest and suddenly you look like a million bucks and well, you feel good about yourself, you know? That's why when you said that you're practical, I was like, eh you're practical but you're also elegant you re you always retain a sense of elegance in everything that you do Sandrine you know you're practical but you'll have a little something on you that usually looks very elegant and very classy uh so to me this is really a reflection of that yes yeah I, I just think that whatever your day has been 
you know, if you wear something that it makes you feel good, then uh, as an example, when you, as a woman, when you have your period, well, this is the end of the world. You feel like a big balloon and you feel ugly and, you know, this is awful. Well, in those days, I take my most beautiful dress and I wear it. And then suddenly, you know what? This weight has lifted and I feel much better. So I've learned through that, that whatever happens in your day, you know, if you can, if it's whatever it is, if it's wearing something that makes you feel good or, you know, calling someone that you love and letting them know that you love them, but whatever you need to do to feel good that day, well, if it's a piece of clothes, then hey it's fantastic it's funny because i you know uh i I don't want this to turn into an infomercial but i do have a quick question (laughs) about um about whether or not can men wear these things because you know i know that i know um of caroline i don't know her personally but i know that she is probably a lot like you kind of practical but elegant you know um so i'm curious if uh if can men wear these what I brought back is only for women this time. Okay. But that's the next step. If I have enough uh, demand from men, uh, definitely. The one for men are much more like, you know, brown and gray and black. You know, it's kind of a, a Japanese, much more, you know, uh, subtle side for, for men. And I only have one black with me that actually could be working for men, but it's one for in, that you wear inside. It's a real summer kimono, but we change it for inside. Um, yes, men can wear that. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. And so I guess, uh, last question then, which, which would be as artists, uh, both you and Caroline, let's say, um, as artists who are now running a company, uh, do you, do you hope, or do you think that this is going to be as fulfilling to you as former performers and dancers? Is this something that, uh, will, will feed the soul, do you think? Well, if I have to every morning be in my studio and create Shodo because people love it and buy it, I think I'm going to be really, really fine and happy. (laughs) (laughs) That's what matters in the end is that as long as we can still produce our art, we will do what it takes to actually do the business end of things. And I think that you as a, as a person, uh, Sandrine Lafont, you're an excellent um, businesswoman, but you're also um, an artist who is devoted to her craft. And I think that's what sets you apart from other, perhaps other entrepreneurs as well, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you said uh, in closing, you said something to me when we first met at the Fringe Festival, which was, um, we were talking about my my art about my photography and I said to you you know one day when I become an artist and you said why can't you just be an artist right now (laughs) and um it left me to wonder you know (laughs) and so I've been calling myself an artist ever since then so thank you for that Mm. and uh thank you very much for coming on the program oh merci beaucoup thank you so much it's such a pleasure (laughs) 